You can open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is the beginning of our series through the Gospel of John, and we will be here for some time. I don't know how long, but it'll be some time. Uh, it's going to be a lengthy series, but if you're going to do a lengthy series, this is a wonderful place to settle down, the Gospel of John. Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy, stretching as far back as Abraham. Mark begins his gospel with Isaiah's prophecy of John the Baptist. Luke begins his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist. From John's first verse here in John 1, he signals that his gospel is going to be quite different from the other three gospels. John begins his gospel at the beginning, but not the beginning of the gospel like Mark and not the beginning of Jesus' earthly life like Luke or not even at the beginning of Jesus' earthly lineage, like Matthew. Instead, John begins at the beginning, the beginning of all creation. And then he even stretches even further back into eternity past. Look in John 1, verse 1 through 2. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so John begins with the Word. Really a divine figure, according to verse 1 and 2, who can rightly be called God. Yet, according to John, one who remains distinct from God. And so he says, this word was God. And then he says, uh, he was in the beginning with God. And so the word, some divine figure who can be called God, yet is distinct from God. This is where John begins. And so John, in one sentence now, into his gospel is already stretching us, already challenging us with eternal truths, even truths beyond our comprehension. The Word was God, yet distinct from God. The Word was with God, yet the Word was God. Well, what is this Word, or who is this Word that John begins with? We have to establish this early, because the rest of John's Gospel is going to be exploring the identity of this one whom he introduces as the Word. And so let's take a few moments to consider who this Word is. John says, in the beginning was the word logos. This is a word pregnant with meaning, a term which would have had tremendous significance for any Jew who received John's gospel. This is uh, a term that would have been very familiar to the Jews and actually would have been a point of contact even for the Greek-speaking Gentile readers of John's gospel. This concept of God's word or logos is richly developed in the Old Testament. By using this term, John is seeking to bring to mind all that his Jewish brethren would have understood regarding the word. And he's pulling this forward into his gospel. And so, let's take a few minutes and just consider what the Jews would have understood this word to be. First of all, it's clear by John's first three words. What does he say? In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand what type of imagery John is seeking to evoke there. In the beginning. He wants us to think of creation. He wants us to think of Genesis 1-1. He's calling to mind the creation narrative in Genesis. And so he would have us understand that the word whom he is introducing was actually present at creation. In Genesis, we are told, in Genesis 1-1-3, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3 says, And God said, 
let there be light. And there was light. God created the heavens and the earth, and how did He create? He created by His spoken word. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. By His word, He brought forth light. By His word, He dispelled darkness. And so Genesis 1-4 says, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And so we're beginning to learn something about the word. God's word brings light. God's word dispels darkness. This pattern of God's creation springing forth from his spoken word continues throughout the book of, uh, throughout the early chapters of Genesis. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was so. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together. And it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And it was so. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens. And it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and the birds fly above the earth. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man. And there we see something a little bit different. God says, let us make man in our image. Why are we speaking in the plural here all of a sudden? Who is there with God at the beginning who is also an agent of creation? Interesting. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God speaks all of creation into existence by his spoken word. God creates by his word. And so God's word is light bringing, it is darkness dispelling, and it is life giving. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So the light which lightens the universe issued forth from his word. And the life which animates every creature issued forth from his word. And again, notice the pattern in Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. In other words, God's word is effective. God's word always accomplishes the purpose for which he sends it, as we will see a little bit later in Isaiah. When God's word goes forth, God's will is accomplished without fail. So anyone remotely familiar with the Jewish scriptures would have recognized that John's in the beginning was meant to evoke creation language. He wants us to understand that the word which he he is introducing here is the word by which God created. It's the same word which issued forth both light and life at the beginning. Well, what else should we understand about the word from the Old Testament? We should not only recognize that the word is responsible for creation, but this word is also responsible for revelation. For revelation. God's word creates, and God's word also reveals. It reveals. With that revelation comes both illumination... But also comes exposure, illumination and exposure. And so you read the prophets, and what happens when the prophets uh, want to speak a word uh, to the people? They begin uh, by uh, relaying to their audience what? The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. Ten times in Jeremiah, 49 times in Ezekiel, the prophets, the word of the Lord came to me. That is, I have received a revelation from God for you that brings both knowledge and brings both exposure and even predicts judgments. 
So the prophets receive revelation concerning judgment and salvation, curses and blessings. Spiritual mysteries were revealed to them. The future was foretold. And all of this through the word, through the word of the Lord. So God's purposes and will are accomplished through his word, and God's purposes and will are revealed through his word. Further, God only, not only reveals his purposes and his will through his word, but he also reveals himself through his word. That is, he makes himself known. That is, his word is his own self-disclosure. God makes himself known by speaking, by speaking his word. So God's word is life-giving. God's word is life-bringing. God's word is will-revealing. And God's word is self-disclosing. Further, not only is God's word responsible for every act of creation and every word of revelation, but his word is also the agent of salvation, of salvation. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. This is an important passage regarding the effectiveness of God's word. Isaiah 55. While you're turning there, I'll give you some background. God's people are captive in Babylon. They have been for many years. In Isaiah 52, the Lord begins to reveal his great promise of a final deliverer who will bring salvation and restoration to Israel. Shockingly, however, when you come to Isaiah 53, we find that this promised deliverer, this servant of the Lord, uh, is one who would be a suffering servant. And you're familiar with Isaiah 53. He would in some way affect the salvation of his people through his own personal suffering. He would actually bear the sins of God's people, atoning for their guilt and satisfying God's wrath against them. This promised deliverer that Isaiah is relaying to his readers is the servant of the Lord who would suffer and atone for sin and live again and receive an inheritance from the Lord. And then in chapter 54, after this promise, the Lord through Isaiah prompts Israel to rejoice. Rejoice at the coming deliverer. And then he says, uh, he calls himself the Holy One of Israel. And he says, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. So a wonderful promise of redemption, a wonderful promise of deliverance, a wonderful promise of salvation. And so he promises that this salvation, uh, that he promises that with this salvation uh, comes a promise never to judge his people again. And so he says, great peace will come upon his people. They'll be established in righteousness, free from oppression. There'll be no fear. There'll be no terror. There'll be no strife. Wonderful promises of deliverance and salvation. And then we come to Isaiah 55 where the Lord through Isaiah issues forth an open call for all to come and to receive the benefits of that promised salvation. So look at Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's kind of the picture of a water vendor going about with fresh water, advertising, saying, come, come and drink. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I may make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, and for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just promise after promise, total pardon is being offered to his rebellious people. Reconciliation with God, full and free free redemption, being offered spiritual life. And all of this, he says, in the form of an everlasting covenant, which will never be broken. Now, remember, these promises were given to God's people while they were captive in Babylon. And these promises came to a people who were captive in Babylon uh, subsequent to them hearing all sorts of false prophecies about false deliverers and false freedom that was coming. And so the Lord, through Isaiah, is sure then to follow up these promises of coming deliverance and coming salvation uh, by offering a surety. This is how you can know that these promises of deliverance are actually going to come to pass. This is how you know that my covenant promise of salvation is real. And how does he assure them that this salvation will indeed come? Look in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's saying, listen, you can be sure that I will accomplish all that I have promised regarding this coming salvation. I will send forth my word and my word will accomplish this salvation. And the nature of my word is such that it always accomplishes everything I intend for it to accomplish. It goes forth, and it never returns to me empty. So shall my word be that which goes out from my mouth. Uh, The fact that my word will come back and accomplish my purposes is as sure, and you can depend upon that as much as you can depend upon the cycle of the seasons, he says. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord says, it is my word which will accomplish accomplish the promised deliverance. It's my word which will bring forth that forgiveness that I promised. It's my word that will accomplish this restoration. My word will bring forth the everlasting covenant predicted, uh, predicated, I should say, upon the promises that I gave to David. So we learn that God's word is effective in creating life and in bringing light in revealing God's will, in disclosing God's very nature, and in accomplishing salvation. That's the Lord's powerful word. Now go back to John. Back to John. John, verse 1. John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And make no mistake... It should be clear as a bell. He says in the beginning, because he wants us to understand that he's pulling forward everything we just said about the word into his gospel. 
He wants us to have in mind God's creative and revealing and saving word. The word which is God's own self-expression and self-disclosure. Now, look at what he says about this word. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. And so, as we've already touched upon, there is equality and yet distinction here. Whomever this word is can be called God, yet remains distinct from God. And we know that this word is also a person, because he says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. And so John paradoxically states that the word was simultaneously God and was with God. And so the word here possesses divine personhood. Look in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He in him. On one hand, this is old news. Every Jew understood that God created through his word. But what is new and what's shocking here in John's gospel is that he is now revealing that when we read that God created through his word, we should understand that that word is a person. Doesn't that shed a little bit of light on let us create man in our image? We should understand that when God creates through his word, his word is actually a person, a person equal yet distinct from God. And notice all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we know that whomever this word is, is distinct from God, yet equal with God, and is himself not created. Because it says that there was nothing made without, uh, we should say it this way, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All of creation, every created thing was made by him and through him. Which means that he stands outside of creation and is not himself a part of creation. And now John does something in our passage that's really a theme that we're going to see repeated throughout his gospel. Look in verse 4. He's speaking of the word. He then says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did we say? We said that the word was life-giving and it was light-bringing. And now John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And what John does throughout his gospel is he likes to use terms that have dual meanings. And you say, okay, well, what is he referring to here? Is it this meaning or is it this meaning? And oftentimes John will actually imply both meanings. He's doing the same thing here with light and life. Obviously, he's referring to creation. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he brought forth life as he created living beings. And so, yes, he's referring to physical life and physical lights. But he's also using another meaning. And we're going to see that unfold a little bit. And so for John, there's also a moral component to light. There's a moral component to darkness. And there's a spiritual component to life, as we're going to see. Of course, the first illusion, obviously creation. But his second illusion, as we're going to see, is to new creation. To new creation. Or salvation. And so, as we're going to see in a moment, that light for John will take on the meaning of moral light, the revelation of how to be saved. Darkness for John is going to take on the meaning of moral darkness or man's refusal to be saved. This becomes a, begins to become clear in the next few verses. Look at verse 6. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And as I was writing this message, I began to understand why John refused to call himself John in his own gospel, and he only refers to himself as a beloved disciple, because I found myself tripping over my words trying to distinguish between John the Baptist and John the writer. And so sometimes I call him John the writer in the message, or because we just call him the Apostle John. Uh, but uh, there is another John here. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. Notice that while the word was God, it says there that this John was simply sent from God. Look in verse 7. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John was not the creative, revealing, life-giving light, but he was sent as a witness to this light. He came to testify about the light. He came to proclaim the good news about the light. And what was the good news? That all who believe in the light would receive life. So John the Baptist preached, and he preached with urgency. And you know the ministry of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's telling men, you have to get baptized, and he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree, right? I mean, there's some urgency to John's message when he's preaching, saying, the light is coming, life is coming, why is there urgency to his message? Well, look in verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, was coming into the world. Well, now this is amazing. John has now taken us to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he's pulled that all forward, and he's brought us to this point where at some point in history, this light-bringing, life-giving Word actually came into the world, stepped into his own creation. And when that time came... John went about preaching. The light is coming. Life is here. Repent and be saved. And so, this light, which lightens everyone, is coming into the world. John bears witness. He was to reveal who the Word was. And he, had, he was the first, right? As Jesus is walking and John points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came proclaiming who this Word was. So he testified to the identity of the word. Now skip to verse 14. John then says, And the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, isn't that amazing? The life-giving, light-bringing, creating, creating, revealing, saving word burst forth into his own creation by stepping in and himself taking upon flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That speaks of his position, that speaks of his worth, but it also speaks of his eternality. John the Baptist was actually older than Jesus, but he says that Jesus was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there, for the first time in John's gospel, we actually see the name Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. Remember what we said about the Word's ministry of revealing and God's self-expression? Well, the Word became flesh, and he has made the Father known. 
And so John, the apostle, finally reveals who the Word is. The Word, by whom God's purpose and will are revealed, is Jesus. The Word, through whom all things are created, is Jesus. The Word, which is God's own self-disclosure and perfect self-expression, is Jesus. The Word, through whom salvation is brought forth and spiritual life is made possible, is Jesus. Revelation, creation, self-expression, salvation, it's all in Christ. Would you believe that the writer of Hebrews, in just two quick sentences, encapsulates all of that? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That's revelation. He's spoken to us by his Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. That's creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's God's self-expression. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is salvation. So this Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God yet distinct from God, God yet was with God, became the incarnate word. He brought light and he brought life to men who sat in darkness. And so John chapter 8 verse 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Isaiah prophesied of this day. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years prior, predicting the time when the deliverer will burst forth onto the scene and he will bring light to those who are in darkness. Isaiah chapter 42 In verse 6, pictures the Lord speaking to the Messiah, and it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He says, a new thing is coming. The deliverer is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's going to uh, inaugurate a covenant for the people. He's going to be a light to the nations. And he is going to free men and women from darkness. Unfortunately, however, according to John, When Jesus, the Word, became flesh, bringing light and life to bear upon the world, it became clear that not all men wanted light. Not all men wanted life. Look in John 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The creator of the world steps into his own creation and the world rejects him. The creator of the world steps into his own creation and the world says, we don't don't know you. But worse than that, he comes into the world and he comes to his own people. The Jews. Those who have the Old Testament scriptures. Those who have the promises of the coming Messiah. Those who have the covenant promises. 
He comes to his own people, and his own people don't receive him. You say, well, how can this be? I mean, imagine a man that's been captive in a dark, dank, disease-laden dungeon with no hope of release. Only to, to one day the door's flung open and for that light to flood into that dungeon. All he has to do is walk out, just walk out. Freedom. But instead, he takes a look at the light and he turns back and he skulks back into a dark corner and says, I'd prefer to stay here. You say, you can't fathom that. But in essence, that's what happens as Jesus, the light, breaks forth onto the scene to a world that is steeped in darkness, the darkness of sin, the captivity of sin. And there are some men who looked at that light and refused to come to the light. Look in verse well, I don't need to turn there. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. People love the darkness rather than the light. You say, well, how? how why? That doesn't make any sense. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. I said to you earlier that light does two things. It reveals and it exposes. It reveals truth. It brings revelation, but it also exposes. So if you come into the light, everything's laid bare. And so some men refuse to come to the light because they love their sin. His own people, the Jews, even rejected him. Those who should have been expecting, anticipating, longing for his coming, his own people. Those who purported to be worshipers of God now reject God in the flesh. But there's good news here. We're going to end with these verses in verse 12 and 13. Look at it in John 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that is, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. New birth. The creative word who brought forth physical life there in Genesis has now burst forth onto the scene with the same creative power, but now he's bringing forth spiritual life for all who would believe. This is new creation. New children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These are those who did receive him. What does that mean to receive Jesus? And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you think you're a Christian, but you really haven't understood the biblical gospel. Maybe you come from some other religious background that hasn't taught you the gospel clearly. You must believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, those who receive Jesus are those who believe He is all that He is revealed to be. They are those who believe that He is the divine Son of God, the promised Messiah, that He's come with power to save. And the idea of receiving and believing means that you're also receiving the idea that we must trust Christ fully for salvation. Receive Him. And what does it say about those who receive Him, who believe in His name, His name encompassing His entire person, all that He is? He gave them the right to become children of God. Those who embrace Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God the one who has brought the light of salvation, the only one who can save, are granted the right to become children of God. Now look in verse 13. 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Remember, he came to his own people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, card-carrying Jews who could say, this is my lineage, I've got Jewish blood pulsing through my veins, so I'm a child of God. No, this is a new day. This is a new creation. You're not in the kingdom by blood. You're not in the kingdom by lineage. You're not in the kingdom by ethnicity. It's not about the will of man, even, or the will of the flesh, nor blood, but what? But of God. Those who believe in Jesus are made children of God by the sovereign working of God himself. Who is and who is not a child of God is no longer determined by lineage, ethnicity, or ancestry. Further, becoming a child of God is not accomplished by human will. It's not accomplished by human will. But all who believe in Jesus are made children of God by God himself. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, no matter the background, no matter the ethnicity, the only factor that determines whether or not you're a child of God is whether or not you receive Jesus, believing in his name. It's in this way that Jesus Christ... The creative word begins to usher in a brand new creation. He does so by making a new people. Again, just as he exercised life-giving power in the beginning as the word, so now he exercises creative life-giving power as the son. John 5.26 says, For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. All who come to Jesus, believing in his name, are made spiritually new. They're made children of God. And again, that salvation comes not by human will or effort or lineage or ancestry. It comes through belief by the power of God. So in conclusion, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, come to Jesus. God is speaking to you through his son. This is that now revelation, that self-disclosure of God himself, that revelation of how to be saved is now spoken by God through his word, Christ, and he's a final word to man. He's showing you through Jesus how you can be saved. He's showing you how you can have your sins forgiven. He's showing you how you can be made his own child. This is the grace of God giving such clear revelation to you. And what does he say? Receive Jesus. Receive Jesus. Believe in his name. That is, believe that he is the promised Christ, the Son of God. Don't choose darkness... Don't choose the darkness of your sin over Jesus. Don't huddle in the corner of that dungeon saying, no, I'm quite content here, thank you. Instead, come into the light. Find salvation. If you're a Christian this morning, rejoice in Jesus, your Savior. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is your Creator. He is your Savior. He is God's own self-expression given to you. Through him, you now have become the children of God, his own people. Us who were not his people now have become his people. So what's the right response? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so give all the glory to God. Give all the glory to God, who in saving us has performed an act of creation on par with the creation of the universe. 
And like the initial creation has done so through his son, Jesus Christ, the word. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's the original creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. When we say thank you for your word, immediately our minds are put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in your kindness, you did not leave us in the darkness of our sin, captive. Instead, Lord, you sent your Son as your final and full revelation to man. You've shown us who we are through Jesus. You've shown us our sin. You've showed us our need for salvation. And you've shown us the way of salvation. Not only this, but you have revealed to us that we are unable to save ourselves. It's not a matter of human will or human effort. This is entirely your act, and all that's required of us is faith. All that could be required of us is faith, because we are wholly unable and fully captive to our own sin. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you've shown us through Jesus. Help us now to know him better. We thank you for your sovereign grace that you have shown in our hearts so that we could have the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus. We thank you for that creative work that you've done in us who are believers. And Lord, we give you all the glory for it. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your powerful word. And now, Lord, this morning we just pray for any who are here who are not yet Christians. We pray that they would understand their need for Jesus. We understand that there's only one way to you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to you except through him. And so, Lord, I pray that these Men and women, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, visiting this morning uh, who don't yet know Christ as their Savior and Lord, I pray that they, by faith, would express to you through prayer that they believe in Jesus, they desire salvation in his name. I pray that they turn from their sin, embracing Jesus as the only Savior and only Lord, and that they would then set forth to live for him. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we believe that your word is powerful and it accomplishes all of your purposes and it does not return to you void. And I pray that you'd fulfill that promise even with the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.